Yeah, uh, <laughs> I like to keep it very free. Uh, you know, <laughs> with movies, I think my biggest problem now is I see no like film theory in what I'm seeing in terms mm-hmm. of movies. It, it's sort of become like it's all about the artistry. It's all about style and and stuff like that. But going back to sort of like the Pudovkin, you know, going back to to you know shots and and editing and and the science of it i feel it's not really there uh and and the argument was well you know a lot of that led to cookie cutter films but people like kubrick you know people like scorsese are very well versed on that film theory Mm -hmm. so you know I, i guess you know if you agree with me or disagree with me but how do you feel you know people coming up because anyone with a cell phone now is a director, pretty much. Pretty much. How can they use these tools to actually create something that qualifies as cinema? Well, one one thing you said was very interesting is the whole film theory thing. I have to say that in today's world, film theory is just not enough anymore. Uh, making a good movie is just not enough anymore. It, you know, yes, you can make a, a, a standing movie that the cream rises to the top and gets in a Sundance. Yes, there are those outliers. There's no question about it. It happens every year. But they are very few of those kind of, you know, you know, how many Godfathers are there? How many Shawshank Redemptions are there? How many Matrixes or Fight Clubs are there? You know, there's 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 a handful of those kind of artists and those kind of filmmakers. But even on an indie level, you could you do you could make good work and it could come up. But if you're really coming up from as I like to call it, the streets uh, of indie film, you got to be more than just a good filmmaker. You have to be an, a whole entrepreneur. You have to understand marketing. You have to understand branding. You have to understand audience and curating to an audience. You have to understand niches and being able to create product for those niches, create films for those niches. The days of of um, you know Scorsese. And, uh, you know, Spielberg jumping off that tram in and, and Universal and, and opening up an office like those days are gone. like Robert Rodriguez's mythological story and Tarantino and Clerks and and uh, Soderbergh. Those th- that time is gone. Those those that, that window closed a long time ago. And there's so many filmmakers that are still living in that world. I was one of them. I lived on that. You know, I grew up in the glorious 90s. You know, you know, I was I was making, you know, I went to I went to college film school in the mid nineties and I was still on the high of all those guys I just talked about, Rodriguez, Tarantino, uh Kevin Smith, all those kind of by Spike Lee, Singleton, all those guys. And where they're in their kind of mythical story during that time in, in film history, every single month almost it seemed, or at least every year, yeah. there was one or two or three of these success stories of these Directors like the rock and roll director, the star director, was kind of born in the 90s. Uh, and it kind of started with Tarantino, to be honest with you. Like when Tarantino showed up, he made directing super cool. Uh, you know, of course, there was Spielberg, but it wasn't the same. You know, it was a different generation. Scorsese and Coppola and those guys, it wasn't as, as, uh, as cool as it was when in the 90s. So, so many filmmakers started to go after that dream. And many of them are still trying to do it. That's we're talking about 25, 30 years later. And we're still hearing these kind of stories of filmmakers trying to do that. So that I think is the first thing that needs to stop in, in the film world, in the indie film world, is that filmmakers need to understand that those times are gone and you now to 
you can't even think about what's happening right now. You've got to think about what's coming around the corner because if you're, it's kind of like when you write, if you write as your screenwriter and you're writing what's hot right now, you're three years late because they're already working on things that are around the corner. So by the time it's hot, that you see that it's hot, it's, it's gone. They've already moved on to another thing. So same thing goes with filmmakers. You've got to, you got to kind of think about what's going to happen in the future a little bit and just kind of think about things around the corner. How can, and then to answer your question specifically, how can filmmakers make um, better films with the tools that they have? Man, learn the craft, you know, study that craft, practice a lot. Don't be attached to outcome, Uh, prepare to fail, be happy to fail. So you can learn because the only lessons you learn are from failure. You don't learn from winning. You learn from losing. So fail and fail often. And all these guys and all these directors that people idolize, all of them failed many, many times before they hit. Many, many times. Even someone like Robert Rodriguez, who I I use often, who was 23 years old when he got that deal with Columbia off of El Mariachi, Prior to El Mariachi, he must have shot, he said, about 20 to 30 short films, experimenting, practicing, learning the craft. So by the time he got to Mariachi, man, he was able to rock and roll and use all those things he had learned along the way. And he didn't show those other short films to anybody. He was just, he was doing it for the pure joy of doing it and not attaching outcome to it because there was no opportunity to attach outcome to it because short films shot on VHS or a high eight camera did not go to film festivals did not get seen by anybody. So he was just doing it just to learn, to practice, to experiment with the craft. Man, if you're a painter, you're going to take a a canvas, you're going to take brushes, and you're going to start practicing. I promise you the first things that Picasso drew were not that great. I promise you. You know, he would probably look at them and go, this is garbage. You know, and, you know, of course, there's always the geniuses of, you know, the Mozarts of the world and the the Vinci's and stuff. But we're talking about so small an amount of people you know, you have to think about yourself not in the exception, but in the rule. And I always use the, the 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 analogy of the lottery. You know, everyone always sees the lottery winner, but no one ever sees the millions of non-winners uh, or losers <laughs> that did not get the, the jackpot. But what do they sell? They sell the sizzle. They sell, look, this could be you. And that's what they are selling now. That's what Hollywood does so well. It sells that sizzle. That's what film schools do. They sell that sizzle. Like you could be the next Nolan. You can be the next Fincher. Where you should be concentrating is being the next you. Because all of those guys are doing their thing. Nolan is not copying off of everybody. Is he inspired by Kubrick? Absolutely. Is Fincher inspired by uh, Scott? Absolutely. You could tell. Is he inspired by Kubrick? Absolutely. You can see the inspiration, but man, that's their own flavor, man. And that's each one of them is doing themselves. And that's why they succeeded because they're not trying to copy someone else. Because I always tell people, you, I could try to be David Fincher. I could study every move, every shot, every edit, and I could try to do it. And I might ever make one day be able to get to a technical, the technical prowess that Fincher has. But I promise you, I will never out Fincher Fincher. I will never out Nolan Nolan. I will never out Tarantino Tarantino. It's just not possible. So you shouldn't try to do it. At the end of the day, you should be true to yourself and find that voice within yourself. And I think that's what's going to make you stand out as a filmmaker. Yeah, I, I love that you mentioned the need to to fail because there's a great story about Peter Sellers. Uh, 
the movie being there during the end credits, you sort of see, uh, you know, some some outtakes. And he got very mad that they included that. He he said that he felt that's why he lost the Oscar, because they saw him making mistakes and sort of broke this character, broke this mystique. And I, I personally don't think that's true. Uh, no. But but there is this sort of culture of protecting the the work and sort of hiding the failure when in reality you know i mean it's like baseball if you hit you know 300 you're a superstar you're a rock star you're a hall of famer and and what does that really mean you know so you, you even look at famous directors i mean again people look at someone like kubrick but you're talking about like a specific pedestal even directors like scorsese not every movie was like this you know, groundbreaking, master yeah, master. I mean, we might all love them, people who are deep-rooted in movies and become obsessed with the director, but they even used to say, what was the saying for uh, Scorsese? Oh, he gives you one every 10 years. That was the saying with well, Raging yeah, you Bull get, you and get, Goodfellas and, and, you know. You had Taxi Driver, Raging Bull, Goodfellas, yeah. Departed, and then mm. the, there's a bunch of really good ones up there, but not at that level. I mean, just my humble opinion. Believe yeah. me, I, could, I, would, I would like to eat uh, the scraps off of Scorsese's table. Don't yeah. get me wrong. Yeah, but, when we but, talk but here, we're like, when you look at someone like Kubrick, though, you know, that's why all of those guys, Scorsese, yeah. Kubrick, all of them just yeah. say, for every one of, mm -hmm. uh, for every 10 of our films, that's basically one of Stanley's. Yeah. You can't look at it that way. You can't look at sort of the, the pedestal because you got to build oh. your own pedestal and, and it, it just Masters doesn't work. These are yeah. masters. These are just the yeah. ultimate of the ultimate. It's like saying, oh, I'm not like Da Vinci. You know, I can't do everything that Da Vinci did. I can't do everything that Mozart did. I can't write, you know, a symphony at five. Mm. You're not going to, man. There's only yeah. one of those that's around every once in a while. And that happens in all art forms, including yeah. ours. I don't look the closest thing I think we have to Kubrick right now, because I'm a huge Kubrick fan, as anybody listening can understand. Yeah is probably Nolan and Fincher. You know, those two guys are probably as close to, you know, hitting every time. And not all the time, but every time, like, they're they're trying. They're still not, I don't think, at the level of Kubrick was. But Kubrick was a specific time and history and place and everything. Yeah. And at the end, you really can't compare art. You know, yeah. art is art. And, and like you said, I think that's sort of depressing uh, to a degree that the game for being the same for about a hundred years of how Hollywood works, it's just changed, you know? And, and oh, it happens, Dale's you know, classical music was around for a while. And then there's sort of, you know, I, I think we're still sort of coping that rock and roll sort of died, you know? And and that Greta Van Street or Greta Van Fleet came out and like, oh, it's back, it's Led Zeppelin. But all I hear is if you're saying, oh, they're the next Led Zeppelin, you're still sort of looking backwards to an era sure. trying to recapture something that's not there anymore. You know, and then hip hop came, and I actually feel that hip hop is sort of at its at its tail end. You know, so I, so I, ears. I would argue. I would argue to agree with you on that one. <laughs> yeah. So so ears change, and the biggest red flag that everything you're saying resonates to anyone who wants to debate. There's no more movie star. When you lose the movie star, you've lost the power of what cinema was because. At the end of the day, directors, studios, the Warner Brother machine that was around for so long. What average people, we know, you know, what lenses Kubrick used for what shots. Average people is how you really figure out who's at the top of that mountain. And, mm -hmm. you know, 
in, in the 90s and the 70s and the 80s, you knew De Niro, you know, even DiCaprio right now, even though he's already in his uh, 40s. These were movie stars when they went. Hey, to, hey, oh, hey, are I'm, they in, hey I'm in my 40s. Hey, calm down. Yeah, but look at it. <laughs> look at it now. Like the best Oscar winners. Are these names regular people? No. Nope. Exactly. Everyone knew DiCaprio. Everyone knew De Niro. Everyone knew Pacino. These were rock stars. Now, you know, you have to find out who these people are by sort of Googling or going on IMDb and seeing, well, who won, who, who's this. And again, I'm talking about average people. And sometimes as filmmakers, we need to step outside this little bubble we have, this little club we have, and try to think, how does this look and feel to the average audience? Because ultimately, I mean, we've been watching movies for so long. We don't watch as much as we want to a movie like a regular audience. We don't look at this stuff like regular people. So, you know, how does the regular audience sort of see this stuff now? Do they even want it back? Well, I mean, look, I, I think that filmmakers in general are, are – are, there's so many filmmakers I talk to on a daily basis who are just angry that things have changed. They want to have the same opportunities that Spielberg might have had or Kubrick or or even Scorsese and, and uh, Rodriguez and Spike Lee and these kind of guys. They want those exact same opportunities, but I, have, I hate to break it to you. Just the world has changed. Look, you said that the movie industry hasn't changed in 100 years, which I argue it has a lot. But – generally speaking, it's a slow transition. So we went from no sound to sound, black and white to color. Then television showed up, changed the game again. Then home video showed up, changed the game again. Then the DVD market showed up. Oh, cable was thrown in there somewhere along the lines as well. So then the cable showed up, paid cable showed up, HBO, Cinemax, those places. All these, there's been giant transitions in the business. How movies are made, though, had pretty much stayed the same during that time. But the marketplace was changing constantly. I think pretty much, you know, from the moment it started in the 1890s, it, it, was, it was always changing in one way, shape, or form, whether it be technologically or the marketplace or something along those lines. The difference is that now it's changing so rapidly and it's changing so unpredictably that people can't handle the change. And I, I hate to break it to you. It is going to get faster. It will continue to morph into something. In 10 years, what we're looking at now will be unrecognizable. Just like 10 years ago, we couldn't even conceive of a world without YouTube. And now it's the second largest site on the planet and the second largest in, uh, search engine on the planet. And it's it, it completely trans. Remember MTV? Remember that? And that was a thing. Like MTV. Oh, the MTV generation. The MTV cuts. It's gone. MTV is nothing now. It means nothing to nobody. Right? What do they do? They don't play music on there anymore. Now you go to YouTube and go Vivo, and you watch all your music videos. And remember when music videos were a thing? They're not a thing anymore. You know, they're they're still around. They still do them, but it's nothing like it was in the '90s. You know, so things are constantly changing and filmmakers have to change with it. One of my favorite directors of all time is James Cameron, because James, and whether you like him or not, I argue that he hasn't made a real, he really has never made a bad movie, in my personal opinion. You could argue it, we could debate it, but in my personal opinion, I think he's always been, he's always hit, in, in my opinion, a, a home run every time I've seen his films. Ten years ago, he came up with this Avatar thing. And I always tell people when I, I was just literally talking to a producer about this the other day, I was saying there is no other filmmaker in the world or in the history of the cinema like James Cameron. 
Who else can walk into Fox Studios and say, I need $500 million to develop a technology that is untested or we have no idea if it's going to work or not, and we're going to launch a IP or a new, a new uh, franchise that no one's ever heard of and is based on no intellectual property. And I'm going to need about five years to work this out. Who does that? Spielberg's not getting that. Nolan's not getting that. Who's getting that? So it's, it's someone like Cameron. Cameron saw something 10 years ago with Avatar. And now he's like, I'm going to double down. I'm going to do Avatar 2, 3, 4, and 5 all in a row. Mm-hmm. And now I hear from the rumblings of people I know that work in the industry, the things that he is doing with the technology. Can you imagine? Like we're just kind of catching up to what he did in 2000, like 10 years ago. It's been 10 years since Avatar came out. It's insane. But it's about eight, nine, 10 years ago since Avatar came out. All that technology has been now incorporated into all standard stuff with the mocap and all that kind of stuff. Now he's taking everything up another level. He's, I think they gave him like $3 billion or something ridiculous like that to do these next movies. Who does that? Like who does that off of something that's really new? But I'm, my story with all of this is that someone like Cameron is understanding that this business is not staying still. And he's focusing on changing the technology behind how movies are made. He's not focusing so much as on the marketplace. He's letting the marketplace take care of itself. That's not his focus. His focus is the technology that's pushing the medium forward, just like Lucas did with, uh, with digital and, and, and Rodriguez did with digital and all that kind of stuff. But my point is that you have to understand that things are changing. And if you don't adapt, you will be left behind. And all of those film school debt loans that you have to pay back are going to be sitting there on your ass for the next lifetime because you can't never get rid of it and you can't get a job doing what you love to do because you are not thinking ahead. You're not thinking outside the box. If you're going down the same road as the rest of everybody else is doing and you're not going into the other and kind of treaching your own road and cutting the own bush, you're going to be left behind. I always say, and this is a great book, um, about the blue, you know about the blue ocean, red ocean idea. No, no. So that there's there's blue ocean and there's red ocean. The red ocean is where everybody is. That's where all the sharks are. Mm-hmm. That's where all the meat's being tore up because there's so much competition. You've got to go where the blue ocean is, where the fishing is free and there's nobody else to compete with you because you are there by yourself. It's scarier, I tell you that, but that's where you need to be if you're going to make it in this business. That's my opinion. Yeah, it's an, I love talking about stories like Johnny Bench always said. Uh, he was told if you, the fastest way to the big leagues is to be a catcher. He said, so I'm going to be a catcher. You know, it's <laughs> sort of go through the open door. Uh, right. And, and it, it's sort of the technology. It's not that it's changing. It already changed. And oh. I, I hear about protests and, and people arguing about Netflix. And it's sort of like <laughs> cabbies arguing about uh, Uber. Uber. You know, I'm like, it, instead of complaining about it and fighting it why don't you figure out why it's working right now why is this resonating with audiences and and sort of how to be a part of this sort of news zeitgeist that's happening right now can i can i say something because i have anytime i have anyone argue about things like uber and the taxis or netflix or things like that i go you know back in the 30s there was this young upstart called henry ford who put out this horseless carriage Mm-hmm. It was an atrocious thing. The Model T was like horrible. You can't replace horses and buggies. So all the horses and buggy people were pissed. 
All the people, the guy who made the whip, the guy who made the little whip that kind of whipped the, the horses to make them go, he was really good at that. And he had a lot of money. He was making a lot of money doing that. But he didn't think ahead. And all of a sudden, what are we doing today? We're not in horse and buggies anymore, mm-hmm. maybe at the park as a, as, a, as a goof. And let's not even talk about Blockbuster, who had the opportunity to buy Netflix uh-huh. for, what was it, $50 million? I think it was the, was the price. And Blockbuster said, no, 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 kid. You go with your streaming. We, we're solid with our DVD rentals. You know, that's the thing. They were so, you know, you, and you have to remember, how old are you, by the way? Uh, 32. Oh, I all right. remember so Blockbuster. You remember, Blo- you remember Blockbuster. Video, right? all of them. Yeah, yeah. yeah, all of those guys. Yeah, Hollywood they Video, all that. Quick. They went they, quick. They, 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 dropped, they dropped like flies. They dropped like flies because none of them saw what was coming. And they were so high in the hog of where they are. And they've been around for forever. Look at Sears, man. Sears has been around for 120 years. They're going. They're gone. Toys R Us, gone. All these places, gone. Why? Because they didn't see Amazon. They didn't see what was coming. You know, taxis. I will never take a taxi again if I don't have to. Why would you do that? That's yeah. insanity. And the funny thing is that taxis had all the, they had all the infrastructure. All they had to do was create an app. All they had to do was think a little bit outside the box because they had everything. They had the fleets. They had everybody. All they had to do was just make a pivot, a slight pivot, and they would own this. But they didn't want to change what was working. They didn't want to think about what was ahead. And from now on, and this goes for all industries, but in the film industry as well, if you do not see what's coming, if you do not pivot, if you do not adjust quickly, you will be left behind and you will be broke, pissed, and angry. And I always ask, anytime I speak in front of an audience, I always go, everybody in this room knows an angry and bitter filmmaker. And if you don't know an angry and bitter filmmaker, you are the angry and bitter filmmaker that everybody else knows. And it's so true. Don't be that angry, bitter filmmaker. Be ahead of the curve. Yeah, and and the student loans from, from film school, I think there's a misconception that being a filmmaker is a job or a career, and it's not. You're an entrepreneur. You are you your own brand. And with what you said, with marketing and all that, if you're becoming a filmmaker, don't expect to go out there and get a job. You sort of have to create your own job. It's sort of like in Harvard where they say, you know, our, our students create their own jobs. That's what I feel sort of the film industry is where, <laughs> yeah, it's not up to anyone, you know, where you say, oh, go on an interview. Oh, try to become friends with them. Network. They'll get you a job. That's not how it works. It's sort of like you don't realize you've made it. And I feel until you've made it. And that's because you're spending all your time building your brand. And like you said, marketing and every every filmmaker I talk to and everyone who's sort of more successful in Hollywood getting like the 10, 20 million dollar budgets. All they keep talking about is, oh, that guy. Oh, everyone knows his name because he has a publicist. And in my mind, I think so. There's two games. Look, man, there's two games, man. You can play the Hollywood game. And I believe me, I'm out here. So I know the Hollywood mm-hmm. game. You can play that Hollywood game or you can play the indie game. You can't play both. It's very difficult to play both. You can play one up until you get to the other one. But I promise you, when you start getting into the Hollywood game, you're, it, it, it is a brutal game to play and it's an expensive game and it's and now the competition is fierce i mean fierce it's crazy when you i'm assuming you know who the duplass brothers are right mm-hmm. yeah all right so mark and jay they get a big thing from sundance they do all this kind of cool stuff and then everybody wants to work with them afterwards They're like so they start doing all the tours all right we call it the water bottle tour in la going to agents going to production companies going to this and that and every meeting 
Jay, to, to telling Jay and Mark, we're going to make this movie. So they walk out of each meeting going, we're going to go make this movie. A year later, nothing. Just nothing. Nothing's going on. So what do they do? They call up their agents and say, we're not taking any more meetings. And the agents are going, what are you talking about? That's how movies are made in this town. You can't do that. He goes, we're going to actually go make movies. We're not going to talk about making movies. We're going to go make movies. And their agents, again, because the agents are agents sometimes, they didn't understand. But now look at Jay and, and, and Mark. They're doing, they're doing fine. They're doing okay. Uh, and they have complete creative control. And they're one of the rare breeds that have complete independence within the system. That I, I could see that with Kubrick. I could see that with Nolan. I could see that with Spielberg. There's a handful of directors. And these guys, and they do it on a very low budget, like a really mm-hmm. low-profile situation. And they were the first to embrace Netflix. They were one of the very first independent films to ever play on Netflix because they saw what was coming. And everybody's like, oh, oh, I want a theatrical release. I want a theatrical release. Dude, it's magical. Don't get me wrong. I, you know, My generation, your generation, we all want a theatrical release. We all want to be in 2,000 theaters around the country. Yeah. But you know what? That's just not the way it's going to work for everybody. But you know what could happen? You can get a Hulu deal like I did. I got a Hulu deal on my first feature. Great. I got, and then, Or you can get a Netflix deal or an Amazon deal. And that's where people look. Look at Roma, man. People will look actually watch her movie. Yeah, it's. Yeah, I mean, look at Roma. I mean, Jesus, man, that is a Scorsese's new movie. I mean, the 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 I Irishman is coming out on Netflix. Yeah, it's on Netflix. That new and, Ben and, Affleck movie. That, and all that they're Christmas doing, yeah. movie with Kurt Russell, like it's insane. And all they're really doing is just putting out the movies that Hollywood used to experiment with. Right but now, they just don't. You know, that and 10 to 20 million, 10 to yeah. 30 million dollar budget. They're, they're just experimenting. I mean, you go back to when it sort of exploded in the 70s where they would just take like five million dollars, give it to five different directors and say, just bring us a movie. And, you know, one of them will end up paying for the others. And and Netflix, that's why, you know, whenever I hear people complain about them, I'm like, without them, we wouldn't be seeing a lot of these movies. And, you know, eventually Those it's all cyclical. Never. Never. It's cyclical. Would Hollywood never... eventually will see, and they're going to start making the movies again. It, it's it's all cyclical. I don't I don't know. I, I I honestly you know I honestly do believe what Spielberg said. I do believe there's a Hollywood implosion coming. I do believe something's oh, going to happen. But there was I, one in the '60s where they had to start selling off backlots. I mean, it's... I mean, it was it was pretty bad. And I think yeah. we're going to get to that point now. You know, like look. Disney's the big boy on the block. As far as studios mm-hmm. are concerned, there's really no one else can, can compete with Disney at this point in the game. And Disney can can absorb, you know, a, a bomb or even two or three in a year. They can absorb it because they have so many other hits. Mm-hmm. You know, I just saw the trailer for Lion King. I'm like, well, just take my money. I mean, come on, we're going to go see it. You know, Aladdin. Uh, um, but uh, that Will Smith genie kind of freaking me out. But, you know, we'll see. Uh, but so, but there's, but a lot of these other studios, Paramount, um, you know, now they own Fox. So, but Paramount, Warner Brothers, Universal, can they absorb a three or four, five hundred million dollar hit once or twice in a year? They're 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 really rolling the dice on a lot of this stuff, and it could go it could go bad real quick. Yeah, and and I think it's gotten to a point where filmmakers are hesitant to sort of be a part of that because you're looking to where everyone's flocking. Filmmakers are flocking to Netflix. Filmmakers are flocking because to you have HBO. freedom. You have, yeah. you have money. You have freedom, and you can make a living. I don't need two hundred million dollars to be happy. Yeah. You know, like I don't need that, and I think that mentality of the entourage mentality. I call it the entourage mentality mm-hmm. from that HBO show 
where you know you're riding and you're going to Hollywood parties and you you know and you you know Ferraris and girls and all that kind of craziness flying all over in private jets. That world, that life, I feel that a lot of people are waking up to it and they're just going, you know what, man? Do I really need that to be happy? Is that really gonna make me happy? Or should I just go and if I'm lucky enough to get a deal at like a streaming service where they're gonna give me a decent budget, but I have creative freedom. And I also could put food on my table. I can buy a home. I can I can you know I could raise a family and I can be happy creatively. Could I do is that enough? Is that the new dream? I hope it is, because that's a sustainable dream where the sizzle that Hollywood's been selling us forever is definitely uh, is definitely not mm-hmm. in our um, in our it's definitely not sustainable and it's not healthy. It's not healthy. That's why you see all these guys, you know, they they just they just crash or they commit suicide or they OD or something crazy like that, you know. It's 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 insane. I, I do think that the definition of success in this business, I'm hoping, is changing a little bit because if they don't change that definition, they're going to be really sad, man. Because if you think you're going to be the next Nolan – and I always tell people, I'm like, look, man, follow your dreams, but don't be an idiot. How many guys or girls at this point get to direct tentpole movies for the studios? How many are released every year? How many? We're talking what? 20, mm-hmm. 30, 30 tent poles a year, right? Something like that, right? So now you're not only competing with the guys coming up with you, you're competing against Nolan, Scorsese, Ridley Scott, Spielberg, Tarantino. You're competing against all those guys for jobs, all of them, for resources, for money, okay? Yeah, and and what I also see happening is the whole theatrical thing. First of all, the whole 3,000, 4,000, 5,000, whatever screen thing, that, that's not natural. And that's something that only really started to come up, started in the 70s and 80s. I think sure. we are getting back to a point of sort of the, the roadshow release where you have some theaters in New York, you have some theaters. Like what they did with Roma, I thought was brilliant, where – you, you do create a special event. When people go to the theaters, it does feel like it's something special as opposed to just, you know, wait for this Friday. Boom. Everyone needs to go watch this movie. It's going to change your life. And, and you know, you don't know what movie is going to change your life. That's what I'm saying. You don't know which one it's going to be. It's about going. I mean, growing up every weekend, we go to the movies. That's just what yeah. you did. And it's not I every weekend the... your life was changed, you know. But you when would go. You do that, see but, the good but, but movie, also... yeah. But that was what we had. Mm-hmm. That was the op- that was that was that was the choices we had. Yeah. And then if it was in the movies, we had the video store. Mm-hmm. You know, the video store changed. I mean, Hollywood was scarce, shitless of 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 the video yeah. store. I mean, I worked in a video store. I remember it used to cost ninety five dollars for one VHS because the studios were just gouging the video store mm-hmm. because the video store was making so much money. We would if we would invest, it cost us sixty five wholesale. So we'd buy a, a VHS for sixty five dollars, right? We would make anywhere from five hundred to a thousand dollars per per copy, per copy. You know, it was insane. It was just a different, but but that's always going to happen. It's always yeah. going to change. And now Disney's coming up with their own streaming service. Their streaming service is popping up all over the place. So I think that's going to hopefully, not hopefully, but I think there's going to be a reckoning in that situation too. I have a streaming service. Yeah, you know, for filmmakers, like I I even have something like that. But I think that. These guys all competing in the red in the red ocean. Mm-hmm. They're all competing in the red ocean. You know, I think the future is niche. Um, I think the future is curation and finding things that mean something to you. 
you know, and I've seen other models work out like that. And I see my own model with Indie Film Hustle TV work that way, which is all dedicated to just filmmakers, screenwriters, and content creators. If you, if that's what you're into, this is the place for you because I got stuff that Netflix doesn't have because they don't care. It's not their business. They want to do more mass. I don't care. I want to go niche. So smaller, I think, is better. And I do also believe that in, in the whole concept of independent filmmaking is that if you don't niche, you're going to be done. Like I always say the riches are in the niches. And it's very true because mm -hmm. if you start, if you, if you make a romantic comedy, a broad romantic comedy, and, tr and make it for, let's say, $200,000 with no stars in it, nobody's recognizable in it, in what magical world do you think you'll make a dime back on that? It just won't work. Yeah. But if you make a $200,000 romantic comedy about a vegan chef who falls in love with a meat eater, all of a sudden, you have a market that you can market to. Vegans, paleo, vegetarians. Just health, drop and then, it on the vegan subreddit, you know? Exactly. And why wouldn't you at that point, as an entrepreneur, create a whole course, series of courses on how to do vegan cooking? And sell that and make the movie almost like a free giveaway. And you're actually selling vegan courses. And that's where your money is being made. There's so many ways of making money with the movies. But you have to yeah, think outside the box. And, and a big lesson that I always heard, which I never really agreed with, was don't invest in your own work. People would always say, don't invest in your own work. Well, yeah, that, would be, that would be true if you're spending a yeah, million or two million dollars. Yeah, but, but it, it gets to a point because people talk about George Lucas and he yeah. invested. The first Star Wars was funded by Fox. Then he took a loan out for the second one and then for uh, Return of the Jedi. Let's, let's put let's put that out there. It was a safe loan. It was a safe, risky. It was a it yes. was, it, it's a risk over. It was a risk averse loan. The banks were like, "Sure, George, you could have yeah. some money." Well, uh, Coppola, but did, Coppola made but similar he, investments and did lose a lot of money. But the point is, he it, he did it anyway. Yeah. It, well, yeah. And Coppola is a great, uh, a great, great uh, story on, on what not to do sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and in in in, in, in he's he's lost fortunes. He gained and lost fortunes. And now he's happy selling uh, uh, wine. He's like, yeah. this is a real business. And that's what gave him the private jet. It was the wine. It wasn't uh, Apocalypse Now, which is, <laughs> which is ironic. But the, <laughs> but the thing is, these movies were made. And it's sort of like, because I remember, I you know, I have my second movie. It's actually talking about theatrical. It's going to a theater in L.A., which, you know, right now to get distribution in a theater is sort of uh, exciting. I even think... though I, I won't be there yet. But... You know, it, it it's just such a different time that if, if you make a movie, you invest a little bit of money into it. It's all about, like you said, $200,000. Are you going to make money back? But if you make a movie for $20,000 and you're able to do something with it, you know, and, and the key is the technology is there. It's just figuring out. I mean, it's always about how to reach the audience. That That's what it's always been. The difference is now where is the audience? It's not only where the audience is, like creating a product that resonates with an audience and then how to get that, get the material to that audience. When you're making a $20,000 movie, you're fighting against old systems. You're fighting against, you know, SAG and mm -hmm. IATSE and, uh, you know, old systems were built on old, old constructs and it's difficult. Now it's changing a little bit, you know, before you had to have, you know, a, a film camera, like you couldn't make a movie without a film camera. Then video came along, and some people started making movies with videos. Then DV came out. Then now we have Reds and Alexas, and now it's all digital, and uh, you know all that kind of stuff is happening. 
but you're always fighting the constructs. Even now, people are like, well, you need a red to make a movie. I'm like, no, you don't, man. I just shot an entire movie on a black magic pocket camera 1080p. My whole second feature, mm-hmm. I shot the whole thing on that. It looks fantastic. It's one of, one of the most beautiful things I've ever shot. It, it's great. It was great because I knew the technology. I knew what I could do with it, and I, I pushed it to its limits. Yeah, the but, question that I hate the most is, what did you shoot it on? I'm oh, like, why don't you ask me what cares. lenses I used? Why don't you, why don't you ask me that? It, I, I think Does it so even much, matter? It doesn't but, even but matter. It, but the point is, with the camera, is that technology, people can't even tell the difference. Even between no. – uh, I mean, even the most trained eye, I'm sure there are situations where you could – Fool people! Is this an Alexa or is this thirty-five millimeter? You know, there's, there's just, there's some things you could do, and I, I you know, yeah. I've been a colorist for a long time, so I could probably pick that out. But man, I'll tell you, man, it's it's tough. Could I, look? I've, I'll argue even more. Can you can you tell the difference between a Black Magic or a Minion and an Alexa? Mm-hmm. And I've done that test. And well, I, actually, I, I prefer I, the the new uh four point six K, the the new Black yeah. Magic. It's yeah, the, fifteen yeah, the, stops the of light, gorgeous. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's yeah, that's the one. That's the one I'm talking yeah. about. And it has a very Alexa feel to it. Mm-hmm. So if you shot them both down the middle and, 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 sh- and, and projected it, could you tell? I, I, I know for a fact, because I, 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 I work with Black Magic a bunch, mm-hmm. I know for a fact there's Oscar-winning cinematographers who have Black Magic cameras on set. Now, yeah. they're shooting on Alexa, but they'll shoot with Black Magic for a little quick here or a quick there, and they'll intercut it, and no one will ever know. Yeah, someone was telling me that that's their standard B camera for the Alexa. And in my mind, because I'm always thinking, you know, in, in terms of cost, I'm like, why not just make it your A camera? Because, and a lot it, because of you like, can't. You can't because it's, it's too affordable. Yeah. There's, there's, there's things that you can't do politically as a mm-hmm. cinematographer. If you're on a $20 million movie, you can't have a $6,000 yeah. camera. It just – you can't do it. It's, I get it, but you can't do it. But on a $20,000 movie – you own one of those camera rigs, well, why not? See, you just got to work within – you got to kind of break those old constructs up and kind of work within the system and, and, and just, just maximize every little bit you can to get it all on that screen. And, and I love Blackmagic cameras. I love – I've shot with Alexa. I've shot with Reds. I've shot with uh, uh, Canons, and I've shot with all that kind of stuff. And I shot 35 and 16 and all that stuff in the olden days. And I'll tell you, man, I do love that Blackmagic camera. I mm-hmm. do. And, and I can sit here and argue with people left and right. Oh, the Alexa's better. And you know what? Alexa's a better fucking camera. I hate to tell you. I don't mean it's curse. Alexa's ah, a better of camera. Curse. It's, but, uh... the, <laughs> but the ROI, the, 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 the value versus dollar, what makes the most sense? Because at a certain point, it, you know, you could spend $100,000, but are you getting $100,000 more of an image? Or are you getting just maybe a 10% yeah. bump? That, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I mean, I've seen bad movies filmed on Alexa and good stuff filmed on a Black Magic. That's the thing. So you're sure. telling me, oh, that camera is better. Well, the movie still sucks, you know. So, what? so what difference does it make? Uh, and I that that whole thing where you have to have a certain camera. I've been in those situations where I was gearing up for a project and then last minute and told, no, we have to do this totally different. There has to be a red on camera, and that money's coming from everywhere else that it was supposed to be invested in, and and. Why do you have to have the red on camera? When the investors come to set, they need to see that there's a red on camera. And at, at that point, that's just, you know, like we were talking about, you have to be an entrepreneur. I'm like, that just sounds like bad business. It is that, bad That business. just sounds like terrible that's business. Ego. That's yeah. ego. That's ego and that's ignorance. 
it, mm-hmm. because they just don't understand the process. There's not a lot of trust. Look, when you're talking about millions of dollars, you got to play the game, man. You just got to play the game. Bottom line, you got to play the game. Yeah. Remember three billboards last year? Yeah. If you remember when they were filming the news stuff, mm-hmm. those were Ursas. Those were Black yeah. Magic Ursas. And then Black Magic called up the DP, and the DP's like, yeah, we just kept them around and shot a little bit of thing here and a little bit of thing there, but their main camera was the Alexa. Yeah. So it's all relative, man. It's all You should instead of people – one thing. Instead of people coming up to you and asking you, what did you shoot on, people should be asking – how did you get those that performance? Mm-hmm. How did you? How did that character arc change like that? Yeah. That's what you should be talking about. That's how you should be asking the questions. Not what effing camera you got. The yeah. camera is going to be different in six months. But that performance that would be like that. Would, that's evergreen. So you should learn that instead. Yeah, I, I mean, a story is what defines the the art form. A camera is just a trend, like you were saying. You know, sixteen millimeter, thirty five millimeter. I remember when certain sixteen millimeter movies came out. Everyone wanted to shoot on 16 millimeter. What was it? Leaving Las Vegas with 16 millimeter. Everyone 16, wanted to shoot. Yeah, yeah Super 16. Uh, Clark's, yeah. Mariachi, the wrestler. It's like, oh, that's what you got to do. You got to shoot it on Super 16. That's what's going to give it that new film look. And the same thing with digital. Fincher shot red, so now red's the camera. You're going to get a movie shot on Black Magic that's going to blow up, and then all of a sudden, that's going to be the camera. But look at Soderbergh. He's shooting iPhones. Yeah. He's shooting iPhones now. That's his thing. And if one of those movies blows up to a certain extent, then it's going to become tradition to do that, you know? And and I love what Soderbergh is doing. One of my favorite movies was, uh, what was it, Logan Lucky? Mm-hmm. I, I love that movie. And everyone I talk to, no one's heard of it. And I'm like, you're looking for something to watch. Here's what you should be watching. You know, the, these movies are out there. And I love what he's doing because, you know, some of the movies that he's making, he, he's totally gone against the stream. And they're not necessarily succeeding, you know, financially, but he's not quitting. He's he's doubling down. He's doubling down and he's going further. But he's got Oscars. He's got money. He's experimenting as an artist and he's pushing the envelope. And that's why he's my power animal. Soderbergh is my power animal. Oh, he's a genius. (laughs) And the thing is, if he would have made one of those movies and it didn't make money and then that's it, he either stops making movies or goes back to the Hollywood system. That's it. It's over. But because he's doubling down, he's going in. Eventually, it's going to pick up. It's sort of like Seinfeld. It wasn't a runaway hit. It took a few years of just doing it and grinding it until people finally were like, all right, this is brilliant. Let's pay attention. And and that's why I love and respect what he's doing. And and a little bit of trivia for everyone listening. If there is no Steven Soderbergh, there is no Nolan. No. Soderbergh is the one who kind of brought Nolan in under his wing mm-hmm. and gave him an opportunity and and told the studio, I'll back him up. And I, I always love that story that he was the one that said, no, if, if we're going to do insomnia, let, let I'll, 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 I'll watch his back. And he was the one that brought him in. I, that was just a wonderful thing. Soderbergh is truly my power animal. There's no question yeah. about it. <laughs> and the fact that he makes amazing movies doesn't hurt either. I mean, no, he doesn't. Yeah. It's, and that's, that's something you mentioned where he sort of helped Christopher Nolan. You hear these stories where Coppola helped George Lucas and, and oh, filmmakers wow. taking each other under their wings. Different time, yeah. Yeah, but, th- but that's something I also feel where it's – because I hear a lot of the debate. There's the huge move into save film. And yeah, I love film stock and for a multitude of reasons. It should, One, there's it the look. And, and as a format, I don't think people realize anything that's on a digital file – 
that file is only going to be relevant for so many years. Correct. I mean, there's a big problem with how do we store movies now. There's no archival. There's no archival yeah. medium like film still. Yeah. Uh, so just from that technical standpoint. But the whole fight to save film, some of that effort, I feel, could be put into finding new filmmakers. I remember Spielberg, he came out with a reality TV show years ago. I know. Where it was, was sort on, of like. I was almost on it. Yep. The reality I, TV show for. I was on the, I was in the top 20. Really? On the lot. Yeah, it was called On the Lot. Yeah. I remember yeah. one short film in particular, the one where it was uh, aliens visit Earth and they're drunk driving. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Uh, it's and, and Yeah, that VFX I, guy. Yeah, he's, I yeah. Think he's doing a lot of cool. He's doing TV, I think, now. He was yeah. very talented. He was a very talented kid. But it, as a show, I just remember, I'm like, I didn't necessarily, you know, I wasn't like, oh, this is something that I feel is a great idea. But that's when I did take notice that they're trying something new with how they find talent. The way they were doing it with music were sort of... They were you know, trying. That, it was very yeah, difficult. Yeah, I, I don't think clearly that it's a system that worked. But there needs to be some sort of effort into finding new filmmakers. It it, it can't just be, okay, who's going to direct the next Marvel movie? There needs to be some sort of process of of bringing people up. It's too many... There's too many... Um, there's too many opportunities, too many um, channels now. Before it was only one or two or three channels, you know, you go film schools, you go to Sundance or, you know, you do film festivals. There's just so many now. And nowadays, I mean, I'm, I'll be honest with you. I mean, look, my generation, your generation, maybe the generation behind mm-hmm. you, the studio system really still has a twinkle in their eye. But th- these YouTubers, these guys coming up that are b- built around YouTube or built around creating their own content. And they're just like, why would I want to go work for a conglomerate company and that's going to stifle my creativity and also not pay me as well as I could be doing on my own. And then I can, so you mean to tell me that I can control my own content. I can make a living and make good money at it. And I could build my own audience, which I have a direct connection to, or I can go and work for a studio like a schlub. Yeah. I'm telling you, there's that, there's a big shift that's going to come in the next, you know, 10 or 15 years when these new generations, you know, when, when Scorsese, Spielberg, and that school, that whole generation dies off, which will happen in the next 20 mm-hmm. or 30 years, and then my generation starts coming up. Because I still, I always consider my generation the, the, the in-between generation. Because mm-hmm. we had our hand and our feet in the old, but we have our hand and the feet in the new. Like, we were there before the internet, but we were there also after the internet. We weren't born into the internet. We weren't born into digital. We weren't born into nonlinear editing systems. We have a little bit of both. So we were that weird in-between generation. Uh, but once once we go, do you think 20 years from 20 years from now, 30 years from now, do you think there's going to be kids who grew up on phones and tablets and God knows whatever else, holodecks, you know, whatever else yeah. that we're telling stories on are going to be interested in the studio system? I don't think so, man. I think it's already. I mean, what does, you know, a Warner Brothers picture even mean anymore? What does a does Paramount it? picture mean anymore? It's not, you know, Pixar universal seems- monsters. Yeah, it's- Pixar means something. Marvel means something. Mm-hmm. And Lucasfilms means something. For the most part, yeah. on a lesser note. But Pixar and Marvel, that's what means. And Disney. Like a Disney movie. Yeah. Those three mean something. I think Netflix is the new studio. And Netflix Netflix and Amazon. These are the new, these are the studios that mean something now, you know, and it's all changing. Uh, I do want to talk about, you wrote a book called uh, Shooting for the Mob. Uh, Yes, I definitely want to talk a little bit about it because, you know, with your experiences, you you sort of got to be behind some closed doors uh, (laughs) and And it's sort of like, you know, uh, 
Easy Riders, Raging Bulls, where, you know, anytime someone has an experience to share, it's always interesting because our imaginations run wild. It's like you were mentioning kids, you know, wanting to work for studios who would want to do that. Uh, and then you get the reality check of when the studio puts their editor on you to make sure that your movie looks like how they want it to look. Sure. Where you don't have that sort of final cut. You don't even have the first cut necessarily. So, you know, what what do you sort of cover in the book? Because it's, it's definitely uh, – well, I'll let you talk about it. Okay, so – um, I think the best thing to do is I always I always tell people I'm, gonna, I'm just going to read the the synopsis, which gives you a real understanding of what the book is about. So uh, a bipolar gangster, a naive young film director, and Batman. What could go wrong? Alex Ferrari is a first time film director who just got hired to direct a twenty million dollar feature film. The only problem is the film is about Jimmy, an egomaniacal gangster who wants the film to be about his life in the mob. From the backwater towns of Louisiana to the Hollywood Hills, Alex has taken on a crazy misadventure through the world of the mafia and Hollywood. Huge movie stars, billion-dollar producers, studio heads, and of course a few gangsters populate this unbelievable journey down the rabbit hole of chasing your dream. Would you sell your soul to the devil to make your filmmaking dream come true? By the way, did I mention that this film is based on a true story? Uh, based on true events? No, seriously, it is. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and, and that's the, that's a story. It's like you said, the Duplass brothers were going around like, oh, we're going to make this movie, we're going to make this movie. And it's sort of like Bowfinger where the process is just yeah. as interesting as yeah. the actual picture. No question. And, and you know, to me, uh, there's something we all know, the Vanity Project, where, yeah, where yeah, it's yeah. sort of uh, – you know, or someone says, yeah, I want to make a movie. And then it turns out to just be a movie about their life. And they just want you to sort of be the ghost writer, the ghost filmmaker about <laughs> it. So this sort of sounds like you're you're sort of getting taken on this adventure where, you know, like you were mentioning, outcome becomes the, the purpose. What was it like being there? And what is it? Honestly, would you go through that same experience? Not if you could relive it, but right now, if you were given the same opportunity. No. No, absolutely not. I wouldn't go through it now, but would I relive it back in the day? Yes, I would, because it made me who I am today. The story is basically about me and, and Jimmy, this gangster who hires me to do this quote-unquote $20 million movie. And we move into a racetrack as my production office. So we're like literally in like a, an old beat-up casino slash lounge. And that's where my – literally where our product – like when we when we have production meetings, we put together uh, coffee uh, cocktail tables. <laughs> Um, you know, it was insane. It's, it's just such an insane story. So then if that aspect of it enough, like hanging out with mobsters, talking about that kind of stuff, that's a cool story in itself. But Hollywood actually took him seriously where I was flown out to LA and I'm 26. Don't forget. So I'm a kid. Like I'm green as all hell. I don't know anything about anything I've directed. I've directed commercials and music videos. Um, in a couple of short films, nothing any of any magnitude, but I was an, I was, I had enough prowess that I, you know, was shooting 35. I was, you know, I was a filmmaker and, uh, I fly out to LA and I'm meeting billion dollar producers, huge movie stars. I'm at the Chateau Marmont. I'm at the, the Ivy. I'm at Spago's. I'm like, I'm hanging around. There's just movie stars all over the place. You know, I'm in billion dollar producers, penthouses, you know, kind of like that scene from true, uh, true romance at the end. That's yeah. I mean, literally, that is that is the scene. Like I walked in and I'm like, oh, my God, man, I saw that movie you did and that movie you did. And we we're sitting down going, you know, talking about movies with one of the biggest producers around. And I even got to meet Batman. I met one of the actors who played Batman where I'm flown to his 
the, I, I was flown to the Batcave, basically to Wayne Manor. I went to Wayne Manor, and I'm sitting there talking to Batman. And, and, and like, this is insane. So imagine being so close so many times to your dream that you've been building up in your head. And uh, by the way, all this time, I'm being verbally abused, um, sometimes a little bit physically abused, uh, and just tortured mentally by this psychotic, bipolar, egomaniacal maniac. And every day was like going to, going to work with Joe Pesci from Goodfellas. You just had no idea who you were going to get. One day, he is the coolest, funniest, ha, 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 we're having a great time, dude. And the next day, is, are you a, am I a clown? Why am I a clown to you? Why am I, do I make you fun? Do I make you laugh? So it's that kind of craziness. So imagine going to a workplace that you're trying to be creative every single day. And I did this for a year, almost a year of my life. Uh, and I almost went, I almost went bankrupt. I almost lost my home. Uh, I, I, my girlfriend left me. I was in a depression for two years afterwards. It took me a long time. To, I mean, can you imagine being so close and being yanked away? But the main reason I wanted to write the book was not an ego trip for me or anything like that. I could care less, honestly. I get enough attention with what I do with Indie Film Hustle. Uh, the reason I, I wrote the book is because I wanted it to help. I wanted it to be an allegory of what not to do when you're chasing your dream, of what not to do when you're chasing your filmmaking dream, where you you have to ask yourself the question, what am I willing to take? What am I willing to sell of myself? What am I willing to compromise in my morals to get to the chance of making my dream come true? And even if with all of that stuff, all the crap that and abuse and things like that that I'm going to take, at the end of the day, is it worth it? How are you going to feel when you're there at the top of the tower that you've built in your mind? Is it worth it? Are you going to be happy? And chances are that's not going to happen because right now as we speak, there's thousands of poor assistants being tortured by agents, managers, producers, directors right now as I'm talking to you in this town, all in the hopes of trying to get a leg up or go up that little ladder to get their, to their next step or to the next dream of this construct of this mind mm -hmm. set that they've kind of built up in their head of what you have to do in order to be successful in this town. It's quite quite remarkable. Uh, and I, again, I wanted this book to be um, that, that for filmmakers and for anybody, but also very, very importantly, that there's a choice that you can leave a bad situation if you're in a bad situation. There's always a choice, whether that be obviously uh, making a movie with a crazy gangster, or that might be an abusive relationship, that might be uh, people that are taking advantage of you, whatever that abusive situation is, or that, that situation that you need to get out of, I wanted to let them know. I wanted people to know there is a choice. I had a choice to leave. I could have left at any moment if I wanted to, if I was brave enough to break through, break free. And obviously I made it. I'm not dead. I'm not in a ditch somewhere. So I won't ruin the end for you, mm -hmm. but I obviously got out of this and I'm going to do an okay. But the story, the journey of this 26-year-old director, you know, filmmaker, going through this... Alice in Wonderland style down the rabbit hole story is something I've never seen. And I've studied a lot, I've read a lot of filmmaking books. I've never seen anything like this and definitely nothing that's based on a true story yeah. without question. So that's the reason why I put it out there for, for everybody to read. Well, you put it out because it's an interesting story. And as a storyteller, you can recognize that. I, I, I actually went through something very similar, not necessarily $20 million budget or in Hollywood, but here in New York, 
And I sort of feel like it's a rite of passage where it was just strippers, weird pimps, you know, it, it's just really famous A-list rappers, you know, and, oh, and yeah. it got to a point where I'm there and I was even younger than that. I believe I was 20 years old. I turned 21 in, a, you know, very famous person's house while working. And it, it's sort of like you go through this experience and in your mind you feel, well, this is what it's supposed to happen. This is the path. And then after working in that situation for a certain amount of years, I, it's almost like a nervous breakdown where you just feel like, what the hell am I doing? This is going to get me nowhere. It's just a lot of promises. You know, it's it's being mm-hmm. told you're you're going to get that opportunity to direct the movie. You just got to keep doing this, blah, blah, blah. And after a certain point, you just realize, no, this isn't leading anywhere. This is I'm just here. Honestly, one of the reasons you end up staying in a situation that long, I feel, is because as a storyteller, you love a story, so you just want to ride that story out. Uh, no, I, I, I would disagree with you. I did not stay in that yeah. story for that reason. Well, well, why, the, the, for me personally, yeah. it was that it didn't happen once. Like you had one, op, you know, one situation. Yeah. I was meeting real people, mm-hmm. real stars, real producers, real agents, again and again and again during the course of that year. So like every moment you're like, is this has to be real? This has to this has to go somewhere. So I'm gonna just eat up a little bit more crap because I'm gonna it, it's gonna get me to where I wanna be. And that was the thing. If it was just a one time or in this or that, I wouldn't have stayed in so long. I would have probably just gotten I gotten out. But because of all this, you know, all these journeys that I would go on, mm-hmm. it was pretty it was a pretty insane story, but it made me who I am today, man, without question. Yeah. Yeah, without a doubt, because sometimes you need to sort of lose faith in one route to start looking for another route. Oh, of and, course. And, and that's what you mentioned, that that blue ocean, you mm-hmm. know, the 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 one where you have an opportunity to swim. Thank you so much for joining me today. I, I definitely had a blast chatting with you. And, and this yeah, conversation in particular, I enjoyed. Not that I don't enjoy all of them, but talking with you, you know, it, it, it's sort of that feeling of a peer where we both understand the concept of indie filmmaking and yeah and have seen the indie world and it is a different animal uh, especially in the digital age so you know it, it's it's i feel it's an exciting time and like you said it, it's about looking towards tomorrow not even necessarily today it's not looking mm-hmm. obviously netflix ain't going anywhere it's about what's netflix going to do next and uh-huh. you know we're going to see it with the irishman they just dropped a, a teaser for it uh, I can't so wait. So it's going to be an exciting time. I'm optimistic. I feel there's ebbs and flows. Every time there's an era like the 60s or the 80s, and the 80s wasn't even that bad because it gave us Blood Simple and and all of James Cameron. Mm-hmm. I feel whenever it feels like, oh, it's the end of an industry, you're just gearing up for something very special. So it's hopefully just, we, we see something happen. Change is change, man. Change yeah. is change, you know, without question. And if I can uh, if I can say where they – if anybody wants to get the book, mm-hmm. yes, it's please. on at- – it's on Amazon. Um, it comes out March 8th, but you can pre-order now uh, as of this recording. I don't know when it's going to go out. Mm-hmm. And then if you're interested in anything I do, uh, we didn't get to talk a little bit about uh, Indie Film Hustle and mm-hmm. what I do with Indie Film Hustle with the podcast um, and uh, and all the resources I give for filmmakers at IndieFilmHustle.com. So you could always check me out there. And, of course, Indie Film Hustle TV, the Netflix for filmmakers. Yeah, I mean I, I'm definitely fully aware of Indie Film Hustle and it's <laughs> – I think all of us are because there's certain resources, you know, especially when you're looking for information, there's variety Hollywood reporter, you know, where you used to sort of look for news and all that stuff. 
but it's not really that relevant to someone out there, you know, with a, a $2,000 camera and some friends right. in their backyard. So indie film hustle is sort of, you know, we always need reminders like we had with clerks, like we had with El Mariachi. You need the reminders that it's not an impossible dream. You can still do it. It's just about figuring out how to go out and actually redefine success for yourself. And I feel indie film hustle is a great education on that, a great resource. Uh, and the more things change, the more indie film hustle is going to become the variety of tomorrow. Not to knock variety, they're going to be here for a thousand years yeah, or, no, or whatever. I, I, look, if I could, yeah. if I in, in my small way, I'm trying to help as many filmmakers as mm -hmm. I can. And you know, my podcast just hit episode 300 a little bit ago, so that's insane. And yeah. I, I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to provide as much value as I can, and and also go a little bit deeper than just like, hey, this is the cool new camera lens, or this is the new mm -hmm. camera, like. I don't do that. I, I try not to do any of that kind of stuff. I'm I'm trying to get a little bit deeper and uh, mm -hmm. and give give resources that aren't really available out there. And there's not, you know, I I'm, I come from a very unique background, being in the business for 25 years and have a bunch of credits and been around the block. And, and my book explains my origin. It's like my origin story of how I kind of became the grizzled independent filmmaker. So I truly hope that uh, the work I do is helping people around the world and. And I was going to ask you, how did you find me originally? I always, I always ask people, originally, when did you find uh, me and how did you find me? Honestly, just Googling stuff and Reddit, because you always look, the filmmaker uh, subreddit sure. is a great resource for us to sort of find information, get into arguments, uh, insulting. Well, Reddit is just a, a concrete jungle anyway, but uh, that that's sort of where I found indie film hustle. And, and when, when you reached out, I felt... This is a conversation I definitely want to have. <laughs> I'm glad, man. I'm glad. Yeah. Me too, man. I appreciate it. It was, it was a very, uh, it was a very cool conversation. And I generally don't get to talk deep film like this. So this was very. Oh cool. yeah, I mean we're geeks. I mean, I mean yeah, at we're film the end geeks. of the day, we're film geeks, and and that's going to be around forever. It's just a matter of you know what are we watching it on, uh, and it's going to be watched. It's it's someone's going to be telling a story some way. We're, we're we all love a good story Absolutely. that sometimes involves a. Uh, Bipolar gangsters and Batman. You know? Hey man, I hope I hope this gets. Uh, I I do want to make this movie. I would love yeah. to make a book into a movie. I was gonna obviously, say, it's coming 2022. To um, whoever puts Netflix out of business by that I, point. Look, if Netflix is listening, I would love to have. Net, I would love Netflix. This is a perfect Netflix project, and it could even be a limited series. I'm not hooked on just movies. Limited series, six episode, eight episodes. I got plenty of inf I got plenty of material for that. But I, I hope so. I do own the rights. So, um, but I do say I did tell people this because I have been asked already a bunch of times, and by some producers as well in Hollywood that are, are waiting for the book to come out. I tell them, I go, look, man, I'm gonna make this movie, and I don't care if Martin Scorsese wants to direct this. This is not how I have to direct it. This is my story, and I have to be the director on it. And I know I will break the, the space-time continuum when I'm directing a scene about myself, about my story. I don't think that's ever been done before. And it's not uh, lost on me that I criticized Jimmy for trying to make a movie about his life, but I'm, all, mm -hmm. I'm writing, producing, and directing one about mine. <laughs> but I'm hoping to do it in a good place, and it's coming from a good place to try to help people. Man, as long as you're laughing, as long as we're all laughing, because, you know, if we weren't having fun doing this, we'd probably be accountants, you know? Yeah, so. amen. amen. We all need accountants, but it's not for everybody. Yeah, exactly. So thank you very much. Check out uh, Shooting for the Mob coming out soon. You can get it on Amazon. And Alex Ferrari with Indie Film Hustle. Thank you. Thank you, brother. I appreciate it.